Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Grant Curry, a permaculture practitioner from the Four Corners region of Colorado who heads up the Permaculture Provision Project. Grant and I have known one another for some time, conversing via email and phone to discuss issues of faith and permaculture and to explore the genesis of the Permaculture Provision Project and how he is using that as a model to explore land restoration work with indigenous populations, particularly the Navajo Nation. It is this latter subject and how he is working with the tribal government and others to raise awareness of the issues impacting the people and lands within the sovereign boundaries that forms the bulk of our conversation today. Now then, on to Grant Curry. I'll join you again afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Then Grant, if you'd like to give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can talk about your projects in Colorado. Yeah, well, I'll I'll try to give you the abbreviated version because I, I guess I can be a little bit of a dilettante, and so I've I've had my hand in a lot of things. I started. To, I guess my permaculture beginning was probably as a kid back in the in the sixties, uh, which of course dates me a bit. My dad gave me copies of Yule Gibbons books, and for those old enough to remember Yule on on TV, the world made a lot of fun of him when he sold out and, and started doing ads for Grape Nut Cereal. But he wrote some really wonderful books on on foraging wild foods. And those books were just magical to me because it gave me the perspective that you can go out in the forest. And I grew up in Pennsylvania on the good end of the state, not not your end of the state. And I could go out in the forest and be provided for, not just subsistence level provision, but delicious stuff. And of course, this was before popular mycology was was really out there. So I didn't know enough about mushrooms to, to dare touch them. But barring that, man, it was like the best gourmet shop in the world. And so then, and I grew up as an, as an urban kid wanting to be a country kid. And then uh, it wasn't until several years later, as, as an adult, that I, I got to realize some of those dreams. But I've also worked in the, uh, I was a, uh, worked at a restaurant in Pittsburgh that was a five-star restaurant. The head chef there became the head of the Culinary Institute of America and has been the president uh, for, uh, I guess it's now working on uh, over almost 30 years. It was a great place to to get a really interesting exposure to phenomenal foods from all over the world, and food was always was always big in my list. Whether it was coming out of the forest or working in a gourmet restaurant, uh, later on in in my career, I sold uh, juice presses all over the world, and principally to kind of boutique places. In fact, when Odwalla Juice had their E. coli poisoning incident. Back in, I want to say it was the late 80s. It was 95, I think, actually. And for those listeners who may not remember that, an 18-month-old child was given carrot juice from Odwalla back before the days when they were pasteurizing, when it was all fresh, the child died. It has become a textbook case in business schools to study how to mitigate risk and, and respond to disastrous outcomes in the corporate world. And, and if we could... If we have time, I'd love to circle back to that story because it really there's so many things in the food industry that I was exposed to that the average person isn't, and it has given me probably a warped view of the food industry in our in our country and around the world. But I think it's reflective of of some realities that the average consumer is not aware of. But um, from there, I ended up working as a as a plant manager for Mountain Sun Organic Juices in Colorado due to a my son getting getting ill back in the uh, western New York, which is where I was based selling the juice presses, and spent uh, several years deeply immersed in actual food production and have some some interesting stories that would also again give give perspective and I think the statute of limitations has run out on some of the stories I'd want to tell, so I think I could probably tell them without being sued but needless to say i've I've gotten a kind of a deep and varied perspective on the food industry. And so how that ties into permaculture is that the the other piece of this is that my my misguided major in college was religious studies. I, I went to college 
for pre-med, and when I was a freshman in college, my dad died. He, he went to a coma over Christmas vacation, and uh, I didn't return to school until he died 10 days later, and it was the most formative event in my life, uh, and, and still probably is. Uh, I, I just adored my father, and so it, it changed my whole perspective. I went back to college, changed my major, and studied every religion I could get my hands on and, and some that uh, that weren't officially offered at, at Syracuse University. They had, by the way, a great religious studies program. And by the time I left college, I was a reborn pagan, which then engenders a whole other conversation about my, my path to where I currently am, which is no religion at all, but deeply interested in one text in particular. I, I find value in, in all the ancient texts, but, uh, but there's one that I think uh, is, is really the real deal, but, but obviously I don't want to color anyone's view uh, unnecessarily, let them find their own path. So all of that mixed together left me in a position that when I sort of started discovering permaculture several years ago, I had kind of an aha moment that permaculture to me speaks of provision. We talked about provision kind of at the start of my life when, when for me, the, the forest became provision. And when, when I saw permaculture, it, it leapt out at me as going back to that sense of provision that is freely given, that I have very little to do with. Yes, you know, you establish a food forest, and uh, of course, you're going to be putting in some work early on. But, but the, the nature of perennials is once you get them going, they provide food for a long, long time without a whole lot of effort from you. And that's pretty magical. I mean, I like being given stuff, and, and I don't know too many people that don't. So to me, that's, that's the main magic involved. And that's why the name of, of the nonprofit that we've started is called the Permaculture Provision Project, because to me, provision is central in all of our lives. When we think about it, uh, we spend most of our waking hours concerned with some form of provision, whether that's emotional provision, financial provision, you know, legal advice, whatever happens to be pressing in on us at any given moment, we're wondering where are we going to find provision to, to answer that issue, whether it's because we're hungry, because we're not feeling loved, whatever it happens to be. And permaculture speaks volumes to that issue. But that's an awfully... I intended not to be nearly so long-winded, so... I prefer to allow time and space for answers to develop so that we can really learn about your story and background. So don't worry about speaking at length about a subject. I'd rather hear more than less. Okay, well, you came to the right guy. When it comes to the Permaculture Provision Project, can you tell us a little bit more about what kinds of provisions you're looking at providing underneath this umbrella of permaculture? It's something that's of deep interest to me right now because of the impact that NGOs and private organizations and just the power of private citizens can have on creating this world that comes within the framework of permaculture, this idea of beauty and abundance all around us that really, I think, answers a lot of those questions of provision in the long term. But I'm wondering how you're approaching them in the immediacy of the now within the culture that currently exists. Sure, and I hope I'll uh, stay on track enough to give you a, a good answer. But the um, so permaculture provision, we, we're on 80 acres in southwest Colorado, in what's known uh, commonly as the Four Corners area, the, the part, the only part in the country where Four Corners intersect, or four states intersect. And we have established kind of the usual stuff, right? We've got uh, we've got a 3,800 foot uh, swale that's about uh, 20 feet wide and and the the berm is uh four to five feet high i calculated that when we get a one inch rain event we capture over four hundred thousand gallons of water in that thing and and let it soak and and it's miraculous absolutely miraculous but but to your question you know beyond getting that that demonstration site started and there's of course a lot more i could say about what we're doing there but relative to how it provides i was in this quandary because I did the, the Jeff Lawton online PDC, and that was great, but we're pretty remote where we are. And, you know, I refer to the fact that, you know, you're in the enviable position where 
you're centrally enough located where you can see remarkable stuff going on without traveling too far. Not quite the same for us. There are some people doing permaculture here, but it's, you know, we don't think anything of driving two hours to get someplace, but even even in, with that radius, we're still hard-pressed to find really neat permaculture going on. So I thought, how do I work with uh, Jeff Lawton or any any number of really amazing people doing amazing things? And I thought, well, it's going to be a little hard to get them to come to Sometimes I refer to this as the four corners of the universe because it feels like we're we're in deep space and no one's ever going to find us. And, you know, I, I thought, well, what's, what's the permaculture credo? Or one of them is, you know, the problem is the solution. So I started looking at the map and realized that the largest brown spot on the North American continent is in my backyard. It's the Navajo Nation. And if there was, if there was any spot in North America that needed some restoration – that qualifies on so many levels, it's ridiculous. And I thought, well, they might not come for my little 80-acre demonstration site, but what about 27,000 square miles in desperate need of restoration? That struck me as a, as a reasonable approach to finding ways to working with some of these very talented people. So I work on the Navajo Nation. I'm, when it was a case of uh, the, the juice company I worked for in Colorado sold out and ended up being closed down. And I had, I was faced with, this is back in uh, uh, early 2000s, faced with either having to go back to the big city and continue working in the juice industry or doing something else. And my kids at that point, I've got five kids and they, by that point, adored Colorado. And, and it was hard to think about moving us out of this location. So I went back to school and became a nurse. I am now a, a nurse on the Navajo Nation and commute back and forth so I'm I'm pretty deeply immersed in in with the people and the culture and a lot of the social and and health issues, and so it became pretty clear that was a place where I could do good, where permaculture could shine, and clearly it would provide an opportunity to work with some of these uh, the, the bright lights of permaculture and draw them here. So my first approach was to think about how to do that and. One one of the strategies I hit upon was try to bring in a, a documentarian who could document the work that was already being done on the, on the Navajo Nation because there is work throughout the Navajo Nation being done by small groups, small, small efforts by individuals uh, whom I'd been contacting. And I decided to call John Liu, uh, who, of course, is, is perhaps best well known for the movie Green Gold. John's worked in 80 countries and seen some restoration projects that are still hard to believe, even even when you've seen the documentaries. And so I started calling John, and uh, after several months of pestering him, and I think being a, being a juice press salesman around the world gave me, gave me a skill set of making myself basically a, an incredible nuisance when I want to, John finally submitted and said, okay, what do you want? But he'll tell you he's a pushover. And as it turns out, John is has worked for a lot of interest. He was a CBS cameraman for many years. He opened up the China branch of CBS News uh, back when relations normalized before the turn of the century. So John said, let's, let's take a look at this. And as it happened, he was going to visit his parents in uh, early March. And I said, well, that happens to be when I'm going to be kind of giving a small address at Permaculture Voices Conference. And he said, well, what's that? And I explained it to him. He said, I want to talk there. So I called up Diego Footer, who was gracious enough to say, yeah, I'd like John to speak here. And, of course, John became one of the keynote speakers at Permaculture Voices. So John and I met there, and then he came back to our strange corner of the world, and we met with the office of the president of the Navajo Nation, and one thing to know also about John is that he works for the Common Land Foundation, which is a foundation based out of uh, Amsterdam, and they are committed to large-scale land restoration around the world. And so the current status is, and and it's, it's you know it's it's still up in the air, but the Navajo Nation is now being considered for being backed for what would become the largest land restoration project in North America, you know, sort of on the scale of the Los Plateau, probably a little smaller than, than that, but still remarkably large for our country. And 
The next step is to have John come back. We would then address the tribal council and uh, go forward from there to establish a research training and innovation center. And then once that's established, begin work in earnest on 27,000 square miles of some of the most beautiful but degraded lands in the country. And just a side note related to that, there's a, uh, there's a phenomenon that's occurring that has been documented quite well by a lot of geologists and hydrologists and scientists who are looking at climate change and drought conditions. And that is that the, the dust that blows off the Navajo Nation, and it's fierce. There are times when everyone in, in the towns on the reservation walk backwards because the wind is so fierce and it picks up this red uh, lussel soil and it, it basically sandblasts you with it. And it's well documented that that, that dust is, is finding its way eastward into the Rocky Mountain snowpack, causing the albedo to, to change and resulting in early snowmelt. What's not known is perhaps the most interesting part, and that is there, there obviously then becomes a cascade of events that occurs. What that cascade of events is, is really hard to tell. You know, it's hard enough when you're playing chess to look seven moves ahead. But when you're talking about a natural system that has, has variables in the millions or billions even, to know the net effect of, of one event is, is really difficult. It's, it's virtually impossible to model. I think science sometimes thinks it's capable of that complexity. But I think as, as people immersed in permaculture, we know that the butterfly effect is, is at work everywhere and the, the connections are so diverse and variable that we can only guess at, at the outcomes. Well, obviously, if you have early snowmelt in the Rockies, that cascade of events is hard to see. But if you look at the U.S. drought map, you see severe drought in California. You see severe drought in, in the Texas area and obviously drought everywhere. But those two areas show up on the drought map as the really hard hit area. You, From time to time, depending upon the month, you'll see indication of drought on the Navajo Nation but the fact is the reason the drought map doesn't reflect more severity right here is because there's very little data collection. You have plenty of data collection in Texas and California because of the economic impact of all the crops. But in our corner of the world, uh, the data collection is few and far between. But there's the suggestion that this phenomenon that's occurring in the Rocky Mountains as a result of this dust from the Navajo Nation is in fact affecting weather in the entire Southwest and ultimately you know, if you believe in the butterfly effect, then you believe it's affecting everything everywhere. I kind of view it, I, I tend to anthropomorphize. And so when you look at the map of the U.S. and you see this giant brown spot, it's hard not to think of, of a kind of a festering wound in the middle of our country that potentially is spreading its infection throughout. And if you look at the drought, uh, we're, kind of in the, we're, we're kind of in the eye of the storm right here. That's a long way of saying, in answer to your question, that, that I think what we're trying to do on our little 80-acre demonstration site and in working with the Navajo Nation is to affect change on a massive level. And if we're, if we're even partially successful, that'll obviously benefit the Native Americans here, uh, potentially could, in, could benefit the, the climate in the Southwest. And obviously, it'll let me work with really neat people and talk to really neat people like you. As someone who works in the Navajo community, but is an outsider to that society and culture, how are you approaching being sensitive to those people who are already there and meeting their needs with your permaculture work? Well, that's, you know, obviously you're, you're Scott Mann because you ask the incisive questions. And that is, that's the $64 million question because I don't for a second presume to come in here as the great white hunter and offer this this wonderful solution because I know how that's failed and how that comes off. All I'm trying to do is support the indigenous people that are doing the work because it's their culture. And if I can be helpful, that's great because the cultural obstacles are, are the largest in this project. And there's a history here. For example, in 1985, the state of Israel sent over a, a highly respected uh, researcher and scientist from Ben Gurion University in the Negev Desert, and for two years he put in drip irrigation with 
a lot of high-tech approaches, and they were growing cantaloupes the size of basketballs uh, on the Navajo Nation, and, and it was looking really positive. But within a fairly short period after he left, that project disappeared. And, you know, there can be all kinds of speculation about why that occurred, whether there was sufficient buy-in by the culture. It's impossible to know at this point. But obviously any project that we are able to help with, we want to be successful. And so I guess to me that's why permaculture is the is the best solution because this relates to a tool that I've been using to promote permaculture in our region because it's not a household word. We're going to be the site of the 2015 Colorado Permaculture Convergence. For the first time, it's going to be in our kind of funny little corner of the state. It's normally up in the Denver-Boulder area, and they decided to let us poor stepchildren take a crack at it. Up in Denver and Boulder, permaculture is a, a household word. Here, not so much. So I've been using this little two-minute segment of, of Jeff Lawton's uh, about the swale that was built in, in the 30s by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it's quite remarkable in, in the, the change it shows simply as the result of digging a ditch and letting nature run its course. And after 80 years, you have this dry, crunchy Tucson desert, and in the middle of it is this lush, green, verdant oasis. So to me, that's the solution that appeals on the Navajo Nation because regardless of how well we deal with cultural issues, the provision will still arrive if we're successful at least at getting some initial installations done, and that will be the piece that compels people, regardless of their cultural orientation, to say, hey, this is something to pursue. You know, if a drip irrigation system fails and, and you're not certain of, of its necessarily long-term benefit, you might be inclined to let it lapse. But when a swale that you've dug results in incredible abundance, it's hard to ignore that generation after generation. So getting back to the cultural issues, my approach and to anybody listening, if one of the many neat things about permaculture is so many people are doing so many so much work with so many interesting cultures around the world that that I suspect there are a lot of people that could have some great input on this process. My current approach is to try to work with the tribal government, which is problematic because there have been some chronic issues that have resulted in some of the population losing confidence in their politicians. And of course, that's not a novel concept. I mean, I think it, we as Americans, with regard to our sovereign government, have similar feelings in many cases, but we'll try to avoid politics, probably, Scott. That, that'd be a good, good way to get sidetracked majorly. So I'm, I'm trying to work with the government, and the government is keen on this idea because what they see, they're aware of the science, they're aware of deep concerns among the elders for the drought conditions that they're seeing anecdotally. I mean, forget data collection. The elders can see water that used to exist that does not exist anymore, and they're worried. So my approach is, is work with the government, but also work with the people that are already starting to do work and, and encourage and support them in, in any way I can. Culturally, as a side note, I I speak a little Navajo, but most of it has to do with whether you've had a bowel movement recently. So it, it doesn't tend to be completely useful in conversations about permaculture. But uh, then again, who knows? Maybe, you know, regular bowel movements uh, may, may be useful in some conversations about permaculture. But in any case, so I guess we're looking at kind of a two-pronged cultural approach with working with the tribal government, but also working with the population that is doing restoration work. And then the third piece is, as this goes forward, we have to go out to the chapter houses and speak with literally every chapter house uh, on the reservation to try to communicate what we're, what we're doing and, and then ultimately establish a site that people can come and see and, and touch and, and taste and determine for themselves whether this is something that should be done. There's also a lot of controversy surrounding funding. There, the Navajo Nation was just awarded the largest award by the U.S. government ever given to a tribal government, and they're very fearful about touching that money, and I don't blame them. The, the population is very divided over what should be done with that money, and so that's why we're looking at trying to bring outside foundations into early on, establish 
the infrastructure necessary to to gain buy-in when people can see the amazing abundance it can result in. So then as I follow this, you're working with government in order to start to raise awareness and get a buy-in from them. But it sounds like there are two distinct portions of this governmental work, that there's a, if I'm following this right, there's like a, a tribal government that you're speaking with, but then there are also these smaller chapter houses that you need to speak with? Correct. And how do those chapter houses operate with the rest of the government? Are they local representative bodies? Well, it used to be that the that each chapter house had had an individual representative in the council, but owing to uh, financial concerns, they had to reduce that. So there are over a hundred chapter houses, and they've now they've now pared down the the council to twenty four excuse me twenty four members, and so you may have uh, one one council member representing five chapters. So there are you know, representatives at the chapter level that have concerns and, and need to have those concerns addressed. And then, of course, there's the official representation within the tribal government, uh, the, the council member who represents that individual chapter. So there's, there's education to do on, on multiple levels, the most important of which is probably at the chapter level where, where the people reside, because obviously they want their concerns represented. Can you work with the individual chapter houses in kind of a bottom-up way, or do you have to go through the primary tribal government and work from the top down, or is there some place you can meet in the middle? To date, efforts have been in, in both directions. And, for example, there is a pastor who is in one of the eastern chapters, one of the larger chapters, who uh, who took uh, the, the president of the Navajo Nation over to Israel simply uh, for a, a faith-based trip and raised all the money on his own, so that none of the Navajo Nation funds were used. And when they got there, they saw, excuse me, they saw what the, Neg what the Isra Israelis had done in the Negev Desert and uh, were just floored, and that caused this pastor to start seeking out a technological transfer between Israel and, and the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation also made inroads, but, but have not uh, tapped any of those. So in that particular case, you've got a, a local member who is who is not, you know, when he came, the pastor came back from Israel, he started doing everything on his own, raising funds, getting volunteers from the business community, both on the reservation and, and in the border towns to clear out irrigation ditches and, and raise money to buy irrigation pumps and so forth. And that's completely independent of, of tribal government. And, and he purposely kept it that way because he, he felt he could make quicker progress that way. But uh, obviously, the tribal government wants to serve their people and recognizes that food, water, jobs, housing are all probably the, maybe the top four concerns that they have for their people, all of which can be addressed by a permaculture approach. So as far as meeting in the middle, there hasn't been a lot of meeting in the middle. The, one of the neat things that we're going to be doing at our convergence in May is that the third day of the Convergence is Memorial Day Monday, and we're going to have a summit for members on the Navajo and Hopi reservations to meet, have a meal, talk, discuss their strategies, leverage each other's resources, and at the same time, the tribal government is going to be sending representatives to explore this and to meet some of those individuals and start a dialogue, which to date there's been a limited amount of. So we're hoping for a meeting in the middle in May, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. It sounds like you have a lot of meetings in your future to speak with the different council representatives in front of council meetings, as well as with the different chapter houses. What's your timeline to start building and bringing this project online and begin implementing on the reservation? Well, uh, I'll give you the theoretical timeline, and, and uh, then maybe we'll we'll discuss actual timeline, but so I'm trying to do as, as I am want to do on a regular basis, just ask my wife too many things in too short a time. So in the midst of planning for a convergence on our property at the end of May, we're also talking to the nation of Israel about a technology transfer. And we're talking to the tribal government and the chapter level population all at the same time. The, the short answer is that the office of the president is preparing to issue a letter to John Liu asking him to 
return on behalf of the Common Land Foundation to present to the Tribal Council the kind of scope uh, of uh, of this project that that's, that seems called for, and that upon reaching consensus there, that that efforts would then turn towards developing a research, training, and innovation center, which loosely estimated at this point would be kind of the focus for the next year. Once that's established, and some of this work would be concurrent, but the, the focus would change then towards large-scale restoration of an area greater than 100,000 hectares, which is roughly 250,000 acres. That, I think, is envisioned in kind of a three- to five-year time frame. But the, the Research Training Innovation Center would be first up and would be an, a, a land area of anywhere from 10 to 400 acres would involve bringing in experts on a, on a lot of different levels and beginning training and experimentation with whatever ideas we had that seemed to be bringing the best and most efficient approach to restoring and remediating the land on the Navajo Nation. So that's kind of a, a very uh, high-level view of timeline, uh, and, and we really haven't got down to the nitty-gritty and looking at uh, detailed timelines at this point. So this is an organizational timeline that gives you some horizons to work around to do some initial planning with, and then as things move forward, start to get something that's more granular? Exactly. And what we're awaiting is a letter from the president of the Navajo Nation, which we, John has just left uh, Amsterdam on his way to Jordan. Uh, he'll then be taking several people, including some of the executives from the Common Land Foundation, to the Lus Plateau in China. I was hoping to have the letter from the Navajo Nation in time for him to present it uh, last week in Amsterdam. There was a, a tragic shooting on the Navajo Nation, which resulted in the tribal government uh, kind of being forced into kind of emergency management mode last week. And so that that letter wasn't forthcoming, but... Uh, the, the hope is that we'll get that letter within the next week and then John can present that when he's in China. That's really where we, where we are now and, and that's what this whole thing is hinging upon. The tribal government needs to make a clear and unequivocal invitation to John to come back. And the sentiment is there. We just have to get the, the documentation. You've provided us with an overview of this process and looking to engage a large tribal community that's spread out over, uh, in my mind, a daunting geographic area. What are some of your current challenges and rewards of working with this project? Well, I, I'd, I'd say working with John Lewis has been really neat because obviously having worked in 80 countries, having filmed uh, restoration work in Rwanda and Ethiopia, China, Mongolia and on and on and on. He's got a vast database of experience to draw from, and so the stories are, are, are fantastic. It was unclear whether John was going to be able to make it to, to the Four Corners after the Permaculture Voices Conference, and so it was a little bit last minute when it was confirmed that he was going to make it, and, and, but we were able to get together a, a packed house at our lodge at our demonstration site of people that largely had had no previous experience with permaculture. And so they get to meet John Liu of all people. And we screened several of John's short films. And the video that I talked about that Jeff Lawton did, it's about the Tucson Swale. There's a 15-minute version on his site and then a two-minute version that he, he did, which is a fantastic tool. If you want to give people their first aha moment about permaculture, and of course, John, I hope I can convince him to make a a two-minute video like it, because two minutes sometimes, particularly at the chapter house level, is is often all you've got to really buttonhole somebody and and get their attention. But that video is is quite wonderful for that. So we showed that video just to these people, and then John's got a great video that's an excerpt from his film Hope in a Changing Climate. It's a seven-minute excerpt, and it's one in which you see you pan across the Lust Plateau as it was at the first part of the century, just denuded of vegetation, completely desertified. And then John, with his videographer skills, then fades in the current scene on the Lust Plateau. And of course, it's green and lush and waterfalls and 
perennial water flows, and it's just it's really motivating to see that. So here we are. We're in we're in our lodge. Uh, we've got this kind of Moroccan theme. Everyone's sitting around on uh, on these low uh, couches, and their jaws just start dropping because they're sitting in in this lodge, hearing John Lou speak and seeing what is possible, not just in your backyard, but in an area of tens of thousands of square miles. And the jaws were dropping because they're seeing that largely, I think we tend as humans to take our surroundings for granted because we, we're born in them, we live in them, and we die in them in the space of uh, 80 years. And oftentimes change on a, on a large scale is difficult to see. So when you can speed that up, through the magic of, of video, it suddenly makes you realize, yeah, we, we can affect change that will result in massive benefit for us in our declining years, but, but more importantly for the, the oncoming generations. And so to your question regarding, you know, what are some of the highlights of, of working on this project? It's the real pleasure of seeing people experience the same aha moment that I did and of course, they do so at different levels. I, related to that, when I was doing Jeff Lawton's online PDC, which which I can highly recommend. Of course, any PDC is 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 a worthwhile experience. One of the features that Jeff included was a lot of interaction online. And so early on, I put out a thread that was called the Aha Moment, and I asked people to comment on what their Aha moments had been, because for me that was sort of the most salient thing about permaculture was the the awakening it it resulted in in me, and I wanted to see was was my experience unique or was it reflected in in the wider population? And it absolutely was reflected. People started coming out with stories about their childhoods in Florida and and climbing, you know, fruit trees and and the magic uh, the magical experience of being a kid in a forest and plucking food off of, off a tree limb and and the juice is running down your arm and the sweetness of it so it it really encouraged me then that this is a phenomenon that can help change the world you know we talk about in permaculture changing minds and hearts and probably hearts more importantly and so at this stage the best tool that i found and the most gratifying thing is to is to use video, John Lewis videos, Jeff Lawton's videos, whatever is at hand, to allow people to experience that aha moment. And it relates to a quote that I love, and I'm, I'll, I'll butcher it badly. It was by uh, French philosopher Antoine Saint-Exupéry, and it, it runs roughly in the form of, if you want to sail to a destination, don't teach your crew, how to tie knots and put up rigging. Teach them a love of the destination and they'll find a way to get you there. And I read that on a Lufthansa flight back in probably 97 and it's always stuck with me. And when I experienced the aha moment over the course of uh, a few months and watching endless, you know, I think all of us as permaculturists go through that phase where all we can do is plug into YouTube and just watch video after video. Uh, that quote sort of reflects what has happened in me internally when I saw the abundance that is provided freely. When I didn't ask for it, I may have worked for it a little bit, but it's so profound. To be able to give that to other people does a couple things. One, it, it's just satisfying on a personal level to see people have that experience. But two, it results in the conversion into permaculture zombies and... I just, it's fun being surrounded by permaculture zombies. What can I say? It, it's, uh, it's a population that is quite remarkable. And being out of PV2 was a real object lesson in that because you're in a room with 900 people and, you know, I've been to conventions all over the world and, and you know, you go to a food convention and, yeah, everybody's there for food, but... But how, you know, for most people, it's just a job. Well, when you go to a permaculture convention, it ain't just a job. It's it's a motivating life force. And so to be in a room with 900 people that feel the same way is, wow, talk about an experience. I'm sure you've, you can probably relate similar experiences. But 
this is all to say these are these are some of the most powerful things about working on this project. What are some of the challenges of working on this project for you? So I'm a, I'm a nurse working with the chronically ill, uh, and and some of them are are in their last stages of life, and uh, I work 13-hour shifts, and I usually work uh, eight days on and then six days off. So you work eight days for 13-hour days, and and then you take the remaining six in that uh, work cycle and try to spend, you know, 40 or 50 hours working on convergences and large-scale land restoration, and, and you struggle to find room to sleep. I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge. Uh, we also had another challenge that we had a, a benefactor who was committed to basically financing our nonprofit through the convergence so that we could focus on that and not have to jump into fundraising mode. And that benefactor had a change of circumstances, unfortunately, and so all that financing went away. So we have gone into the war room, come up with plan B and are, you know, have our marching orders and, and so are proceeding accordingly. But obviously that's a challenge because we want to make this convergence the best experience possible. I, when I went to PV2, I had great compassion for Diego because here I am trying to organize an event which is far smaller than PV2 obviously has a lot of the same moving parts, but what he's done is, is quite remarkable, and, and I had great compassion for the efforts he must have put forward because uh, he's not doing this full-time either. He's got a day job. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. But the beauty of it is that when you've become a permaculture zombie, you can actually get by on almost no sleep at all. So there's, there's that going for it. We're all stretched for time in this modern life of ours. Yeah, and I, of course, see the, you know, the end game is that time when I will sit in the shade of my food forest, plucking sweet fruit off the, the boughs and feeding them to my beloved and gazing into the sky with, with nary a thought to the pressing issues of tomorrow. But, but of course, right now, that's not the case. To come around from the beginning when we started with your personal story and bring this interview to a close, what are your final thoughts for the listeners and how they might change their own story? Well, I'd say if you have been, you know, one of the impetuses that I've seen from the efforts you're doing, the efforts that Diego's doing, and some of the other people trying to kind of spread the message is to get people past the point of dabbling or kind of nibbling at the fringes of permaculture and, and jumping in with both feet. And, and that is a challenge. With my own personality, it's less of a challenge because I'm just dumb enough that, that I'll jump into, into the deep end before I remember that I haven't been swimming in a long time. But with more sensible people, that can be a challenge to, to take that step and move forward into, into engaging in real action. One of the greatest things I think about permaculture is that I've long, since I've been a kid, I've been interested in the, the big questions of life. Why are we here? Where are we going? What does life mean? And I'm easily one to think about things, talk about things, and muse over things, and polish my thoughts. And all that's wonderful, and I enjoy it enormously, and, and I enjoy even more talking about it. Uh, I, I, I sincerely hope we can sometime talk uh, about one of the profound issues in permaculture, which is the, the huge tension between feelings about science versus belief and the intersection of those two areas in permaculture. But, but I think the great, one of the greatest things about permaculture is that it allows us to, to take action on our beliefs. And so when people are in that early stage of being fascinated with permaculture but not knowing where to start, I think the key is having a sufficient aha, aha moment to cause them to, to just say, I don't know what direction I'm going to go in. I'm just going to start and, and let things, let the chips fall where they may. So my, my biggest encouragement would be give yourself that aha moment to where you become so enthralled that you just start moving forward. And one of the other principles about permaculture that I think is so valuable is we tend to talk 
not about failure, but about attempts that didn't result in the outcome we were looking for. So we attempt again. I think in our culture, and I think I grew up particularly in a culture that said, you know, you've got to succeed. And so it can, it can, it can marginalize you because you tend to, you think of yourself as, well, I don't dare try something because I might fail. Permaculture says anything's fair game, have a whack at it. If it doesn't work, try again. I mean, I love Mark Shepard's stun method, sheer, total, utter neglect. I can do that all day long, man. I can plant a tree and forget about it. And man, if I come back in three months and that tree is thriving, I can claim success. And if it failed, I can say, okay, plant something different. Uh, And so those two principles of you know, get passionate and motivated and just try something. And, and the second principle of, you know, don't worry too much about the outcome because if it doesn't work out, try something different. I think that's what people need to embrace the most early on so that we can all get out there and do amazing things. And I should rather say be a part of amazing things because I think the provision comes from less our efforts and more someplace else. And And that to me is the the most magical thing about it. Thank you, Grant, for joining me today and for sharing your project and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it and look forward to hearing from others and the inspiration that it provides them to either get involved with projects or to start their own. Well, it's been a distinct pleasure and I uh, look forward to hearing all the rest of your podcasts. You do a fantastic job and it's probably hard for you to, to really assess the kind of effect that your podcasts have because it's anytime you're in the middle of the forest, it's hard to see the trees. But I know that what you're doing is profoundly important because it is encouraging to all of us who are at varying stages on, on the path. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that anything I said could be encouraging to people listening. And that was Grant Curry. You can learn more about him and his work at the Permaculture Provision Project Facebook page, which you'll find a link to in the show notes or by searching on Facebook. I like Grant and his enthusiasm, but realize how this conversation rubs hard against the issue of respecting other cultures, particularly indigenous populations. I'm glad for his perspective that this is about working alongside the government and the people in the community, rather than forcing a particular vision upon those who are there already working in that space that this is about elevating that work and bringing in people who have the sensitivity to not impose external values on the practitioners. Though I know there are people like Grant or Peter Michael Bauer doing this work of honoring Native traditions, it is something that I only understand on a cursory level and certainly need to do a lot more reading and research on to even begin to alleviate my personal ignorance. If this is an area that you are familiar with and can share any insights, I would greatly appreciate it if you could let me know. One other piece of the puzzle I would like to hear about are your aha moments. I want to know how your personal story, your life, connect you to permaculture. What is the part of your experience that made you give a damn about the world we live in and wanting to take an active role in doing something that will make a difference? Mine comes from when I was around nine years old and wandering with my friend Josh through the farm fields behind his house, building forts on every rock outcropping with sticks we could find. His mother would dress us up in his father's old Marine Corps BDUs and roll up the sleeves and pant legs so that we didn't trip over them. If I remember his father was something like six foot three and 250 pounds and there we were, you know, a little over four feet maybe, with our skinny little arms trying to fill them out. And she would use her deft seamstress hands to add a quick stitch here and there so that those arms and legs would stay in place through our hours of play and send us out to get wet and muddy and safely to traipse through cow pies. We'd slither along stream banks, watch birds throw dirt clods at one another, look for snakes, but rarely find them, look for spiders, and find those all the time. And generally just be boys as a part of nature. Two kids with acres and acres of semi-wild places that we lived in for days on end, only coming in long enough to grab a quick bite to eat before heading out until the sunset, getting called in to dinner by that orange glow on the horizon, then up the next day for breakfast and to do it all over. Though in recollection, it seems like I spent years and years out there in those fields exploring, and dozens more later as a Cub Scout and Boy Scout. My time in those spaces was little more than two seasons, the spring and summer of 1989. That fall, I changed schools and did not see Josh again for many years. When I did, we were both a little bit older, but no longer close. We spent some time just existing in the memory of our friendship, but were never able to reconnect again. Though, as those times passed into memory, I lost my childhood friend. I never lost my love of Earth. 
that connection sat there, germinating, as I left the wild places and took a, a road more civilized. As a teenager, I sat at a desk and learned how computers worked and how to program. From time to time, I would go camping and hiking, some of those human-scale outdoor recreational activities. Then as I had children, I took them on nature walks and to talks about things like salamanders or skunk cabbages. As I showed my daughter the unbuilt environment, the blueberries and the butterflies, I found that love for Earth I had for so long, held on to but not really explored, taking root again. With it came permaculture and an interest in how I interact with the built environment, initially thinking about a desire for smaller spaces and less stuff. As time passes, I turn away from that world built by humanity and look to the soil, the trees, the plants, the animals, and the people, but not our civilization, and ask myself, how do we save what matters to each of us? If you have an answer or just more questions, I'm here with you whenever our paths cross or for as long as they run parallel with one another. Get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. You can also send me a letter, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. As I say at the beginning of every episode, this podcast is listener-supported. I'm finding out now that the show seems to be getting big enough that I'm getting contacted by marketers and publishers who want me to run native advertisements and corporate-written editorials on the website, but I'm not going to do that. Yes, it would certainly help the financial side of the show a lot for what they're offering, but as I said at the end of the episode with Peter Michael Bauer, I'm tired. I'm tired of business as usual, and so I'm refusing those offers. I'm not going to be a shill. That's why, though I may make announcements from time to time for someone to advertise on the podcast, I only tend to do that during the show itself and don't have a advertise here button on the webpage to make it harder for people to find out that they can, that you have to be engaged in a listener to the show to know of that possibility. And so I'm not going to put up a button like that or an easy way to find that someone can ask me to share their information. I'm only going to talk about and share things that I really believe in and think will make creating the world you want to live in easier and better for all of us. Opportunities and experiences. With that said, I do need your help to keep this podcast going. The best way to do that now is through a recurring membership using Patreon at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. You can find information on the various goals and reward levels for supporting the show in that way. You can also make a one-time donation via the PayPal button on the main page for the show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or by sending something in the mail at the address above. And it's always helpful if you would... Leave a review on iTunes, your favorite podcast site. Share a link with your friends. Put something up on Facebook or retweet something on Twitter. You can find me at PermacultureCST. The Facebook page for the show is facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast. Lots of ways to get in touch. Lots of ways to share this information. From here, coming up on April 7th is Jen Mendez of permikids.com who joins me to talk about teaching children with permaculture. And on April 15th is Dina Falcone, the author of Forging and Feasting. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.